Well, thank you, David and uh, Sim and the rest of you for inviting me to be here this week. I had a wonderful few days here last year. We met in the tent in those days. I don't know if it blew away or what happened to it, but uh, it's nice to see you in this warmer, snugger environment and uh, to be able to share with you from the scriptures. We go to the written word of God, not to know more of the written word alone, but that through its pages we know the living word, which is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that's my prayer and concern for this week, that uh, in the words of that hymn, beyond the sacred page we seek you, Lord, and we want to find and experience and enjoy him. And I trust you better join us for each of these sessions. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 5. I'll give you a more exciting title in just a moment than simply studies from the Beatitudes. But uh, that's what I'm going to do. But I'll give you a better title in a minute. And we're going to read Roman, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 down to verse 12. And many of you may be familiar with this. It marks the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus preached the longest message we have recorded uh, by him. It took three chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7, and this is how it began. Let me read Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's as far as I'm going to read, and there are no prizes for guessing that that passage is all about being blessed because that word reoccurs nine times. That probably doesn't excite us very much because blessed is one of these vague words that we Christians tend to use in a multiplicity of context. You, know, you get up in the morning and uh, you, you say, Lord, please bless today. And then you have your breakfast and before you eat it, you say, Lord, please bless the food. And then uh, you ha have a quiet time and you, you want to pray for some missionaries and you say, Lord, please bless the missionaries. And then somebody sneezes and somebody says, bless you. And then you discover the cat has jumped on the table and has eaten some of the food. And you say, that blessed cat has eaten the food. And we tend to use this word blessed in all kinds of ways so much so it almost becomes a meaningless word. So when I read these verses, and nine times, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, in most of our minds, we kind of pass over that word. It's a blank. But it actually has meaning. The Greek word translated here is the word makarios. And the word makarios literally means to be happy. That's his literal meaning. Now, most translators steer away from that because in English, the word happy has sort of superficial connotations. You know, it's about being in a nice, good environment. You're lying on a beach and the sun is shining and you've got a big ice cream in one hand and um, a girl in the other. <laughs> no, your wife in the other, whatever. <laughs> and you're happy. And then a thick cloud comes moving along and begins to drop cold, wet raindrops on you. And the ice cream falls into the sand. 
and the girl gets up and walks away. And you're not happy anymore. Because we think of happiness in that kind of context of being nice, good, comfortable feelings. But makarios does not mean that. Makarios is talking about a deep inner sense of well-being, contentment, satisfaction that is there irrespective of our circumstances. The kind of thing Paul was thinking of when he wrote to the Philippians. And you remember he was in jail when he wrote. He was in prison in Rome. And he'd got there because there'd been some gossip about him back in Jerusalem five years before. He'd been imprisoned in Jerusalem over this gossip. He'd then been taken to Caesarea to stand before the Roman uh, governor. And he wanted him to pay a bribe so Paul could go free. But Paul didn't pay bribes. He stayed there for two years. <coughs> At the end of two years, he appealed to Caesar. They said, all right, we'll send you to Caesar. They put him on a boat to send him to Rome. The boat sank a couple of times on the journey. And he ended up spending the winter in Malta. He eventually arrived in Rome. And when he got to Rome, Caesar wasn't interested. And the book of Acts finishes with Paul spending two years in prison or under house arrest in Rome, that's five years altogether, two in Caesarea, one on the way to Rome, uh, half of it in Malta, two years in Rome, that's five years. And he wrote to the Philippians, and I imagine the Philippians thought, oh man, Paul's going to be in a bad mood. He's been taken out of his work for five years. He's been in prison for five years. And he wrote to them, he said things like this, rejoice in the Lord, and I say it again, in case you think I wrote the wrong word down by mistake, rejoice. Why? He says later, I've learned the secret of being content. He didn't use the word makarios there, but this is the issue that makarios is about. A deep inner sense of well-being that is there irrespective of the consequences. You know, most people are looking for happiness. Some years ago, in England, I spent the first 50 years of my life living in England, and was involved in ministry there. And uh, years ago, a few of us got involved in trying to reach young people in the area where we lived. And we got a questionnaire together, and we'd go into the places the young people would hang out. A lot of them were in coffee bars. But we'd go into, into discos and dance halls and things as well. we say, hey, we're taking a survey. Would you like to answer some questions? And most of them say, sure. So we'd start with some mutual questions. What band do you support? What soccer team do you support? What's your main ambition in life? How do you hope to reach that ambition? Who do you think Jesus Christ is? Why do you think he died? And before long, we're talking about Christ. But we started with these very neutral questions. And uh, after doing this for quite a while, we got together and we tried to work out how the young people in our area were thinking. And in answer to the question, what is your main ambition in life? That was one of the questions we asked. The overwhelming majority said, my main ambition in life is to be happy. That's how they answered. And that's interesting. I'll tell you why. Because the very thing most people are looking for is the very thing Jesus Christ talked about in these verses. However, when you look at the list of ingredients in what Jesus said makes for happiness, well, what most people are looking for, you find a massive contrast. Jesus started off, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, whatever the in spirit means. Whoever heard of poverty making you rich? When we ask the question, what's your main ambition in life? We then asked, how do you hope to reach that ambition? And most of those who said, I want to be happy, said, I want to be rich. <laughs> now Jesus said, no, no. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are those who mourn. That's a, that's a very unusual one, isn't it? If you met somebody who said, I, I'm so miserable, I wish somebody would die, then that would make me feel better. Blessed, happy are those who mourn? He says, blessed are the meek. I mean, meek sounds a bit weak, doesn't it? A bit pathetic, a bit like, you know, excuse me for being alive kind of attitude. 
He says, blessed are those who are meek, humble. That isn't what most people are looking for. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Whoever heard of hungering and thirsting making you happy? It's normally having what you hunger and thirst for, not hungering for it. And you look at the last one, blessed, happy are those who are persecuted. I mean, if you met somebody who said, look, I'm feeling a bit down, would you please come and beat me up? I think there's something wrong with you. Yeah, Jesus is happy, blessed are those who are persecuted. But when you look a bit closer, of course, you notice something else. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, not the poor in pocket. What does in spirit mean? He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not for a hamburger and Coke. He talks about theirs is the kingdom of God. At one point, in fact, twice he says that. He talks about they will see God. That is the pure in heart. They'll see God. And you realize when you look more closely that the qualities Jesus is talking about here are not physical qualities, but spiritual qualities. Most people are looking for happiness in the physical, material realm. And Jesus here is talking about the, the spiritual realm because that is where true happiness, contentment, meaning is designed to be found. For a number of years when I was in England, I used to go into high schools quite a lot because in England, religious education is a compulsory subject. In fact, the only one that is in the statute books as being compulsory. And uh, there's a reason for that. One went to the history of it, but it goes back to, to, to a certain time when that became mandatory. And it's not been taken off the statute books. It still is. And they define religious education as that which conforms to the 39 articles of the Anglican Church, because that's the official state church in Britain. And if you read those 39 articles, they're pretty evangelical. Not only does every student have to have a religious education class every week by law, but there, are, there is an assembly defined as an act of worship to be held every day in the school. Now, schools are getting big, so some students do it three times a week, some two times a week, but it's on the statute books, they're supposed to do it. So when I was traveling, preaching around Britain, I very often was invited to come into a school I'd take an assembly with the whole school sometimes, and then I would take some of the RE classes per day, or sometimes I'd do a whole week, like a week's mission in the school, in the classes, and then we'd have some meetings in lunchtime outside the class, which would say at the end of each class, hey, if you want to know more about this, come to this meeting at lunchtime. We're going to be in room so-and-so. I was in a school on one occasion, and I was talking to a class of kids, I think they're about sixth, seventh grade, and I said to them, who... Anybody here want to be happy? Put your hand up. And everybody put their hand up as far as I could see. I said, great. I want to be happy. You want to be happy. How many of you have thought about the things that make you happy? Would you put your hand up? And again, as far as I could see, most of them put their hands up. I said, uh, all right. I had a chalkboard here. I'm going to take this piece of chalk. You tell me the things that make you happy, and I'm going to write them down on the chalkboard, and then we'll talk a bit about them. So tell me something that's going to make, that makes you happy. And I don't remember the order in which they came, but the kind of things, there were no massive surprises in what they said, but somebody, for instance, said food, so I wrote down the word food. Somebody said sport, I wrote down the word sport. Somebody said music, I wrote down the word music. Somebody said girls, it was a boy who said that. <laughs> so I wrote down the word girls. And then there were about 30 altogether, different things came on the board. When we had those things on the board, I said, all right, forget about this for a moment. Let me tell you something about you. Then we'll come back to this. Every one of us here is made up of three parts. We have a body, we have a soul, we have a spirit. Let me explain those things. You all know you've got a body. 
That's what you see when you look in the mirror. And we feed it, and we dress it, some of you paint it, and we all know we have a body. That's the most obvious thing. Inside your body, you have a soul. What is that? That is the life that is in your body that thinks, that feels, that decides. And you know you've got a soul because you make it your business every morning that the most important thing you do today is to make sure you don't do anything which causes your body and your soul to separate. So if you walk in front of a moving truck and you get hit, it's very likely your soul and body will separate. And when that happens, your body isn't good for much. And so your family, put it in a box, dig a hole, put the box in the hole, sing some songs, cry, and go home. And you don't want that to happen. <laughs> because you're more than just a body. You're a soul inside that body. But there's a third thing. You're a spirit. What is a spirit? I said, I'll explain it this way. There are three kinds of life outside. There's, an, there's plant life, animal life, and human life. Plant life just has a body. So it's alive. You don't go and have a conversation with the tree and say, how are you doing this morning? Did any birds sleep on you last night? Uh, you don't play music. At least some people, most of us don't. Plant life just has a body. Animal life has a body and a soul. I didn't tell them this, but the Hebrew word in the Bible for animal life is the word for soul. The dogs have a mind. You can say to a dog, sit, understands what you mean. Puts it around on the floor. You can say to a cat, scat, and the cat runs away. They have a mind, they have emotions. You can see emotions on either the mouth of the dog or the tail of the dog. Usually the tail's wagging, it's good. If the mouth is, it's not good. <laughs> uh, they have a will, they can decide what to do and so on. I said human beings are a different kind altogether. We have a mind, we have emotion, we have a will. And what that is, is the capacity in you that animals don't have. It's something in you that asks questions like, where did I come from? Where am I going? I look up in the sky and the starry night and say, I wonder what, what's up there. Animals don't do that. You don't find cows looking up at the sky in a field saying, I wonder what's up there. You don't find uh, cats committing suicide because they've lost the meaning to life. They don't have any meaning, they're just cats. <laughs> Human beings do that though. You don't find dog, dogs taking to drugs because they've somehow lost any sense of purpose. Human beings do that. It's part of the spirit capacity in which we're designed to know, experience, and enjoy God. Explain that to this class. And I said, now, which of those three do you think is the most important, the body, the soul, or the spirit? Suddenly put his hand up and he said, spirit. I said, why do you say that? He said, because I know that's what you will say is the right answer. <laughs> I said, but is it the right answer for you? He said, I don't know. Anybody else? Somebody said, soul. I said, why? Well, because it sounds like spirit may not be right, so soul probably. I, I don't know, mind, yeah, I guess. I said, anybody else? Somebody said, body. I said, why body? Well, because that's the only one left. I said, you're confused, aren't you? You're trying to work out what I think is the right answer. <laughs> but you're not confused at all. I said, you gave me 30 things up here to make you happy. I wrote on the bottom of the board, body, soul, spirit. I said, I'm going to take a piece of colored chalk and we'll draw a line from each of these to whether they do with the body or the soul or the spirit. So what's first on this? Food. Is that to do with the body or the soul or the spirit? And a very intelligent girl said, body. That's right. Draw lines of the body. Uh, sport. Body. 
Music. Soul, somebody said. Good. Somebody else said, no, no, I like to dance to it. Body. I like to move with it. <laughs> Girls. I won't tell you what they said. But we went through the list, and by the time we finished, about 25 things went to the body, about 10 went to the soul, because there was some overlap. And actually, nothing went to the spirit. I said, now, which of you said is the most important? And they said, body. I said, that's right, that's what you said, isn't it? You said, look after the body, feed the body, fatten up the body, slim the body down, exercise the body, excite the body. Give the body some fun, and you'll be happy. Now, I want to ask you a question. How many of you here, I said, are really happy? Put your hand up. Nobody put their hand up. I said, do you know why? Maybe you've got all this back to front. Let me tell you something Jesus said. Matthew chapter 6. I said this to the kids in the class. He talked about people worrying about food, about clothing, about where they are going to die, about how long they're going to live. Worrying about these things, like lots of people do. And then Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus said to those people, listen, your life's all messed up. You're worried, you're wrapped up in all kinds of things. And do you know why? Because you've got everything back to front. Seek first God, his kingdom, his righteousness. And you'll discover this. Everything else will fall into place. Now listen, somebody's got it all wrong. Either Jesus Christ has it all wrong, or the world at large has it all wrong. And I think I know who's right. And these beatitudes that we're looking at, I'm calling them the ingredients of true happiness. True contentment, true satisfaction, a true sense of meaning are found in these verses we've read together. There are eight Beatitudes. The last one he repeats twice. He talks about those who are persecuted, and then he makes it personal when you are persecuted. So he makes that twice. So it's eight different things. Uh, eight Beatitudes. Not because he's talking about eight different kinds of people, Blessed is this one over here who is poor in spirit, and blessed is this one over here who's mourning, and blessed is somebody over here who's meek, and blessed is somebody back there who's uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. No, it's one person, eight qualities in each person he's talking about here, and there's a progression that starts with the first, builds on it the second, and then the third and the fourth, right down to the eighth. And in these meetings, this morning, tonight, the next four, three nights, is it down to Wednesday night, we're going to follow the progression. And I think it gives us a picture of the kind of Christian life that will be lived with a depth of satisfaction and meaning and security and happiness. Let's look at the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says in verse 3 for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first step to real happiness, says Jesus, is becoming clear about one fundamental fact, and it is this. I do not have what it takes to be what I am designed to be. I don't have it. I am poor in spirit. And it is vitally important that we come to understand this, that God is not an optional extra to life being lived properly and well. He is indispensable to that. And that 
apart from him, I have no good thing, is the verse in Psalm 16. Apart from you, I have no good thing. It doesn't mean everything about me is bad. It just means it's incapable of behaving the way it's supposed to, to, to behave and function. You know, if I got a brand new car, let's say a, a Rolls Royce, uh, Rolls Royce Phantom, that's, I think, I understand, I don't know too much about Rolls Royces, that's one of the, the best of, of, of them. And uh, I, I got this Rolls Royce Phantom, and it was a, a great color. It had uh, uh, leather upholstery, it had uh, state of the art sound, and all the technology that's available now in a car. And I parked my very expensive, beautiful looking, well equipped car outside my house. And you walk by, you might be very impressed with it. But supposing it had no engine under the hood. It would still look good. It would still be my favorite color, still have state-of-the-art technology and all the rest of it. But be totally incapable of being a car. <laughs> doing what a car is supposed to do. And if you were to say to me, hey, look at your car, it looks fantastic. Can I come for a ride with you? I'd look a little embarrassed and say, I, I'm not going anywhere. Because a car without an engine is incapable of being what a car is supposed to be. I mean, you can make use of it, of course. You could keep some chickens in it, I guess, or something like that. But you couldn't go very far. And when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's saying, blessed are those people who recognize the true nature of what it means to be human, that by yourself you cannot be what you're designed to be. Let me read you what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, God made us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline. Um, Lewis said uh, petrol, because he spoke real English but I am bilingual, so I have changed it. A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is no good asking God to make us happy without himself. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because he is not there. There is no such thing. In other words, when God created human beings, he created himself to be indispensable to how human beings function. His picture is like gasoline in a car. Mine earlier was like an engine in a car. You know, we, we, we talk about this when it comes to becoming a Christian. We recognize this, but this is not just about becoming a Christian. This is also about being the Christian we have become. I cannot do it myself. We sang that hymn just now. I didn't know this hymn was going to be sung. Rock of Ages cleft for me. And that beautiful second verse about this, it says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And that hymn is saying, you know, the words uses nothing, naked, helpless, Foul? I can't do this. But it's equally true when it comes to being the Christian we have become. We can only live this life when we recognize this impossibility to me and its possibility only for Christ living in me. Martin Lloyd-Jones was recognized by many as one of the great preachers of the 20th century. He wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount. And let me quote you from it. 
He says the Sermon on the Mount condemns every idea that the Christian life is something that you and I can do ourselves. The first beatitude, which is this one, blessed are the poor in spirit, the first beatitude says to us, in other words, there is a mountain that you have to scale, there are heights that you have to climb, and the first thing you realize as you look at that mountain, which you're told you must ascend, is that you cannot do it, that you are utterly incapable in and of yourself, and that any attempt to do it in your own strength is proof positive that you've never understood it. That was Martin Lloyd-Jones. Sad thing is, and I meet them all over the place, they're Christians who've been Christians for years. We're still trying to do it. They've not come to the point of recognizing that I can't, and so they're trying their best to live for Jesus. And they're promising Jesus, I will do it, I'll try harder. They reduce their life to living by sort of biblical principles rather than out of a living, dynamic presence of Jesus Christ within them. And we fail every time. Sim, I know, has been speaking from John 15 in recent weeks. And you remember John 15, verse 4. Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. You've heard this. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Neither can you. Verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That is nothing of lasting value and significance. And it was a number of years after being a Christian, I came to the conclusion that the only good thing about Charles Price was Jesus Christ. And if I look to anything else as the source of goodness, it will fail me. Now this either frustrates us or it opens an amazing door to us. And here in this beatitude opens an amazing door. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't complicate the idea of the kingdom of heaven. It's not a place we go to when we die. The kingdom of heaven, by definition, is the sphere of the rule of a king. You see, a kingdom has a king. And a, king, a kingdom is the sphere in which he rules. And where is the kingdom? In, John, in Luke sorry, 17, verse 20, once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, they saw it as something to be coming. Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is in you. Why is the kingdom of God in you? Because that is to be the residence of the king. And because that is the residence of the king, we now can exchange our poverty for his riches. We exchange our inadequacy for his adequacy and sufficiency. And so blessed are the poor in heart, says Jesus, because theirs, they are the ones who discover the richness of the king and the kingdom. But we live in that sense of poverty. And probably my prayer more than anything else in my daily life, every day, I pray it every day, several times every day. Lord, I can do nothing in myself, but thank you, you live in me. So I trust you to do your work. Now we want to be obedient, we want to get on with life, we're done with the job, do what we're told to do, just do what is natural in life but with a disposition that says there's nothing in myself that can do anything of value for somebody else, but he in me is present.
Now let's move on quickly for the second one. Because when we discover our poverty of spirit, there are several things we can do. Sometimes we discover poverty of spirit by, by getting into big trouble. And we think, why am I flat on my back here? I'm in big trouble. I've, I've failed, I've fallen, I've sinned, and whatever it is it is. And we find ourselves in deep despair. And you can do one of several things. One is you can hide it. You can build a protection of lies around your failure. You can pretend it isn't so. Or you can face it honestly and move to the next step. Blessed are those who mourn. In verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What he's talking about here is not death and funerals. He's talking about having faced honestly the poverty of our spirit. Our response is to mourn it. It is what we call repentance. Repentance is a lot more than being sorry for what we do. There's an important place for that. Repentance is recognizing I do what I do because of what I am. It's not just, oh no, I did something wrong here. I slipped up. Let me smack myself on the hand and say sorry and hope it won't happen again. No, what happens here comes out of here. It's the heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, the book of Jeremiah tells us. And if we think of our problem only in terms of what we do, we might try to modify what we do. We might meet some measure of success in that. We won't deal with the real issue because the real issue has a cause. It's what I am. It's my fallen nature. You may have heard it said before, you're not a sinner because you commit sins. Rather, you commit sins because you're a sinner. You heard that? You're not a sinner because you commit sins. But we commit sins because we're a sinner. You know, to illustrate it, a plum tree doesn't... A plum tree is not a plum tree because it grows plums. <laughs> it grows plums because it's a plum tree. Does that make sense? Obviously not. <laughs> when you plant a plum... You don't go out to your plum tree and say, I wonder if we're going to have bananas this year. Or tomatoes. No, you, you expect plum tr plums for the simple reason you planted a plum stone. The plum stone germinated, began to grow. It has a plum nature. And all it can do is plum. <laughs> so when your plum tree is just a foot out of the ground in your garden, and your neighbor says, oh, what are you growing there? You say, I'm growing a plum tree. Not because you're a prophet and you're predicting it, but because you planted the plum seed. It has a plum nature. All it can do is produce plums. Now, in the same way, if the plum tree is not a plum tree because it produces plums, rather it produces plums because it's a plum tree, you and I are not sinners because we commit sins. We commit sins because we're sinners. I had six beautiful grandchildren, and they were, well, before that I had three children. And they were born beautifully innocent. And I was tempted to think, this is one it's going to break the mold and remain perfect. <laughs> but of course they didn't. I, but I knew they wouldn't because I knew their mother. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there's something in them that was inherited from me and from my wife and from our parents and grandparents back to Adam in Adam, you see something happened. In Adam, all die. We're born separated from the life of God, incapable of being godly, which is what goodness is. So the morning 
He's saying, Lord, I recognize my poverty of spirit. I may have learned it the hard way. I may have got to my neck in trouble. I've discovered it the really hard way. But, but I, I, I recognize it, and I thank you that there's a possibility of a king occupying a new kingdom, my own heart. So I mourn that poverty. I live with that disposition that is not just an act of repentance, it's an attitude of repentance that says I'm turning from what I am to embrace what you are because here's what happens. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Comforted by who? By the comforter. Who's the comforter? You may know that Jesus several times gave that name to the Holy Spirit. John 14, I'll pray the Father, he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Now you would think when you're talking about facing sin and mourning that sinning, you get an accuser or something, or you get a condemner. But no, you'd be comforted. The word he uses there is parakletos. That's the name. It's not an easy word to translate into, uh, into English. It's translated comforter, counselor, advocate, the dictionary meaning is someone who comes alongside to comfort in grief. That's apparently how the word is used. We talked about the grief of recognizing our own poverty of spirit. Now you mourn that poverty, you live in that spirit of repentance, and you'll be comforted. John 14, 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, when the Father will send in my name, he would teach you all things. John 15, 26, when the comforter is come, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the spirit of truth, he will testify about me. You see, our antidote to our own poverty is the Holy Spirit. Repentance, which is mourning, involves turning from living my life in independence to living my life in dependence, from living my life in my strength to living my life in his strength, from living my life my way to live my life his way, living my life to accept to, for, for what I want, to discover what he wants, living my life calling sin by acceptable names, turning and calling it or God calls it. Because the word repent means a change of mind. That's the literal meaning of the word. Repentance is a, comes from a Greek word, metanoia. Meta to change. Noia, now the mind. Change your mind. It's an attitude of mind. And when I turn from what I am to who he is, I don't find simply a fantasy. I don't find there just an idea just a philosophy, just a theology, I find a person, the Spirit of God, the Comforter, who's present and active. And I discover that he replaces my poverty with his riches, my weakness with his strength, my defeat with his victory, my sin with his righteousness. And that is very comforting. We had a guy in the People's Church in Toronto where I served for many years. He'd begun his life in a Middle Eastern country. And he'd migrated illegally into Germany. And while he was there, through the help of a crooked lawyer, he'd been able to establish himself as a candidate for German citizenship. He wasn't entitled to it, but they presented evidence that was false that made him entitled to it, and he got his German citizen, he got his German passport, he then had access to a German university, he got his degree, and at the end of that time, he decided he would migrate from Germany to Canada. Came to Canada, when the first few days of arriving here, he met somebody who happened to be a Christian, who brought him to the people's church. He'd never been in a church. 
His background was from another religion. And he started coming in due course, he came to Christ. When he came to Christ, something changed inside of him completely. And he immediately began to feel very uncomfortable at the fact that he had come to Canada on the basis of being a German citizen, migrated from Germany, but it was a German citizenship which was illegally obtained and fraudulently obtained. And his conscience began to trouble him. He didn't tell anybody about this, but he got on a plane and he flew to Frankfurt. And when he got to the airport, this is his story later, he came to the check-in desk, with the, 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 not the check-in desk, the kind of uh, immigration desk, and he passed his passport across to the immigration officer, and he said this passport was illegally obtained. The man looked at him and said, beg your pardon? <laughs> this passport I got illegally. So he put it onto his little device, and it declared it to be perfectly good. He said, but this says it's good. I know, because we the information that enabled it to be issued as something good was actually full of lies. So w why are you telling me this? Because I want to surrender this passport. What other passport do you have? I don't have one. So the immigration man said, I need to take you to meet somebody else because this was past his pay grade, I think, dealing with this kind of issue. So they left the immigration booth, went to a stairs, went to a room. That was the senior immigration officer. I said, okay, what's the story? Well, I got this passport here illegally, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, why are you doing it now? Well, because my conscience says that I, I should. Well, didn't your conscience tell you that in the first place? No, it didn't. No, it was very clever then. Well, what's happened to your conscience? Oh, I became a Christian. And because I became a Christian, I, I'm troubled by this. Really? Yeah. They kept him there for about four days. They went to another office, another level. After about four days, a man he'd not met before, who was a senior immigration officer, came to him and said, now, let me get this story straight. You're telling me that this was obtained illegally, and he went through, because he'd explained how it got obtained illegally. Now, if we revoke this passport, you know that you will lose your degree you earned here in Germany. It'll be discredited. Yes, understand that. You know you'll be sent back to your country of origin, not Canada, your country of origin that you were refugee. Yes, I understand that. And you'll relinquish all the privileges that belong to being a German citizen. Yes, I understand that. And you still want to do this. Well, I, I must, because my conscience says I must. And so we've been talking about this upstairs. We don't meet many people like you. He said, Germany needs some people like you. Here's your passport. You've told us it is irregular, and we're going to go back through that. We're going to correct the irregularities. We're going to issue you another passport that will be totally legitimate. We need people like you in Germany. And he shook his hand. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> what, what happened? This man didn't know he was poor in spirit. He thought he was being clever, making all these tricks and getting his, getting his passport done. But, but now he's faced, you know, I, in myself, I can't live the way I'm supposed to live, and so I've lived it badly. I've filled it with things that are wrong and sinful. And his conscience, the spirit in his heart, convicted him, caused him to mourn it, to mourn it. And the Holy Spirit said, go and put it right. And then he came back to Toronto and told us a story. We had no idea this was going on until he came back and told us a story. The secret of real happiness begins with facing your poverty, mourning your poverty, allowing the comforter, the Spirit of God, to be the comforter, to come and replace everything that we are with everything Jesus Christ is. And that leads to the next logical step. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meek means to be humble. They find their place on earth. Not about heaven, this. Life on earth. How do you know where to live? How to live your life on earth? And we're going to look at that tonight. 
And uh, I especially encourage young people to come tonight. We're going to talk about how God guides us in life on earth as well and leads us. And what it means to be meek is to be humble, to be submissive, to recognize that the Christ who has come to live in me, it's the kingdom of God he established in me. He's come to be king. What does it mean for him to be Lord? How do I live under his lordship? And how in living under his lordship does life on earth, they will inherit the earth become so meaningful and purposeful and fruitful. Because the gospel is not just about equipping us to go to heaven when we die. It's about making us useful on earth in the meantime and living a life under the Lordship of Christ. Not only satisfies, but is fruitful in its effect on other people. And we'll talk about that tonight. But let me finish with this. If you're not comforted by the Holy Spirit, you're not aware of his presence in your life, you're not living with a conscious relationship with him, I'll tell you why it is, because you're not mourning your condition. If you're not mourning your condition, I'll tell you why that is. Because you're not aware of your poverty of spirit, you still think you can do it. If you're not aware of your poverty of spirit, I'll tell you something about you that you know. You're not happy. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning that your word is given to us not to put our heads into the clouds, but to put our feet onto the ground that we live in this world, in this life, in that real union with the Lord Jesus Christ, where we're in Christ, he's in us. There's mystical elements to that. There's mysteries to that. But your presence in us is what equips us and enables us to live a life that is fruitful and satisfying. I pray for any who may never come into that relationship that we will do simply by acknowledging our need of you and thanking you that Christ on the cross reconciled us to God. We might be born again of the Spirit and dwelt by him. And for those of us who know and love you, we've been Christians some perhaps for years, but we've been trying our best and we're wondering why it doesn't work. Rather than living in humble dependence and obedience, in union with yourself. We pray you'll bring us in these days into a more fuller understanding of that and a richer experience of that. We pray it in Jesus' name.